Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So without further ado, um, welcome to this special evening with students from UC Irvine's MFA program. We have four students to share their poetry and prose, and um, I'm going to introduce Amanda and Amy. Thank you so much for coming. This is such a great big crowd. Really exciting. Can everybody hear me? Mic okay? Okay. A little louder? All right. Um, so Amy and I just want to thank um, Skylight Books. We're so excited to uh, be able to host one of the MFA events here. We love this bookstore. Um, I hope that you guys will browse their incredible collection after we're done and pick up a few things. Um, you're going to hear from uh, two poets, uh, Claire Cronin and Meriwether Clark, and two fiction writers, Scott Lerner and Will Litton. And each of those readers are going to read for about 10 minutes. So I'm going to introduce Claire Cronin, our first reader of the evening. She is a second-year poet in the programs in writing at UCI. She's going to read a collection of connected poems titled Therese. This work uses 19th-century Saint Therese of Lisieux as its seed. At times, the poems appropriate translated quotations from Therese's own memoirs or from texts about the saint. But the world of language that Claire situates around this history is entirely original, surreal, and imagistic. I love lines like, before she was a photograph, Therese lived in a white dress like a lake. You can hear Claire's fascination with the rhythm of religious language in this work, but it is neither cynically secular nor entirely devout. This is language invested in the spaces between history and hearsay and between apocrypha and doubt. At the center of this is an attempt to fathom a woman, her body, and her particular experience. Please join me in welcoming Claire Cronin. Thank you, Amanda. This is so flexible. Um, so yes, this is one poem in uh, something like 13 parts. Uh, and I'm, even though the saint that it's sort of based on uh, is French, I'm using American pronunciation <laughs> and calling her Therese. <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it's not like a biographical poem. It's not recounting a history exactly. It's sort of using it uh, to talk about other things. Therese. Therese was beautiful at seaside, light blue ribbons in her hair, 
little flower of the divine prisoner who cried for nothing, then cried for having cried. Her great capacity for sadness, moved by military music from the academy next door. Therese ate nights and rocks, northern stars, glass, European monarchs, had nervous tremors lasting six weeks at a time, encouraged to renounce herself by cloisters overhead, Therese dressed her dolls in Carmelite lace. She stood with open palms, a wind carrying salt. The tremors were a blue thread through her life. Somewhere in the background, a small pattern of wolves hollowing the distance. Therese wakes each day violently, crying in and out of speech. Through cracks in crown glass enters fog, milk dark filling up the space beneath Therese's sleep. Before she was a photograph, Therese lived in a white dress like a lake. Four seasons of small coffins, her mother also gone, her sisters who survived did so to enter holy orders. Therese received the scarlet palm, the silver palm at school, was petted and adored for painting pictures. The little queen, a golden cloud of curls. At Christmas time, her father placed milk chocolates in her satin shoes. Such tenderness, this flood. God grants me this unspeakable sweetness. Therese believed her friends did not think about death enough. The body is a farmer. The body is endlessly receiving its own shadow. Like other girls, Therese's heart, a pear inside a bridal chest. Much petted and adored with pearls and ribbons, feathers, miniature ships, their whole world sugar-held and blooming safely under gauze, their children's perfumed hair, their terraced gardens. The rural aristocracy believed the dead come back in well-adorned black carriages. Therese wept when she noticed how the roses lose their color in the dark. Therese born to a ballroom filled with snow, white dresses into which each girl would bloom. What would become of their enchanting homes and gardens? Even their fragrant hair would blanch, white as the wigs of the previous century. Therese of the child Jesus and the holy face, fitful in her shadow, built her silent house inside the convent at Lisieux. The flowers she gathered in the gardens matched the sacrifices she made each day, 28 on average. After her death, the church received 9,741 reports of roses sent by Therese to those who prayed to her for signs.
The chapel at Lisu is waiting for a bell that angels are delivering from Nazareth. Therese reads backwards, walks the halls, wraps peonies beneath the gray sleeves of her habit. Four seasons of small coffins, her mother also gone and buried in a box built for a child. The nuns collected roses and tossed petals towards the faces of the statues. It is true that there were days when Therese would not speak at all. At first, God instructed her in secret. I go behind my bed to an empty space and enclose myself entirely with curtains. Therese began to suffer from the throat. I want to live without speaking to myself, as if the singing birds are errors. This fog, this darkness, Therese's body flecked in faint white O's of weeping. Headaches after midnight mass, God's open mouth found everywhere across her. The purpose of affliction is to make yourself unrecognizable to yourself, to suffer without effort or constraint. Therese takes turpentine and salt, red dust from the Colosseum floor. God closes his blue eyes to me, Therese's eye retreating. Two themes were dear to her, a boat that hurries towards the light, a singing bird that falls into a trance. Seven hours kneeling, little bread, Therese was less and less. Once I was a braid kneeling before them, glittering like pastries and cakes. One winter day, what joy, Teresa's handkerchief filled with blood, whooping cough or nervous fits, nervous tremors lasting six weeks at a time. The prioress reproached her for her hope of dying young, to vanish as a glass poured into soil. Therese painted a pink Jesus on the antechamber wall and gold trim on the robe of every statue. She carved with a sharp tool into the lintel of her cell. No love and fear of water enter here. Many times Therese held tight her right hand in her left when she walked past a sister's cell and wished to knock. She did not lean against a pillar or a wall. She did not sit near fire, knowing heat would comfort her. It took an effort to stand up and chant, an hour sometimes to undress. To pray well, I must give myself to suffering and song. My life is held with one hair from his head. The fog came in through cracks and curtained her white bed. Therese wrote slowly in large script, wide spaces between lines. If I go to heaven soon, lightly colored red and gold, in heaven where I will not rest but work, 
I'll ask permission of the Lord to visit you next Christmas. My soul will visit yours through a partition thin as glass. Thank you. Uh, next we have Scott Lerner. Scott Lerner, who I like to call Joel, <laughs> for reasons I cannot explain, uh, grew up in Van Nuys, which is also known as the Valley. Um, he attended UCLA before coming to UC Irvine, where he is a first-year fiction writer. In the short pieces he'll read today, the speaker is acutely, perhaps overly observant of life's details. The voice is obsessively self-conscious in a way that is appealingly neurotic, sensitive, and intelligent, much like the author himself. <laughs> Scott also has a great love of quality fabrics, playing the guitar, and wearing overalls. Please welcome Scott Lerner. Do you say attractively neurotic? <laughs> Appealing. Oh. <laughs> attractively. That's what, that's what I want to be. Um, thank you, Claire. I'm just going to read a few short pieces. Um, yeah, that's, that's all you need to know. Uh, the first one is called Memory. I often ask myself, but only when I'm alone and have no one to speak to or take me from myself, why thoughts enter my mind, and how they enter, where they come from, if they are the saplings sprouted from seeds planted days, weeks ago, and if not, if that seems too soon, then decades, centuries, millennia ago, and the further back in time I travel, searching for an explanation, I experience a sensation of admired surrender in the face of an enormity that exists beyond simple origin inquiries that I'm able to ask or comprehend. Okay, the next one uh, is called Confession. <laughs> it's about Will. <laughs> It's not, it's not um, two brothers, aged seven and ten, would together regularly sneak into their father's study. Each time they would smile to each other, shocked and exhilarated that the older brother was able to pick the lock and let them in, though the door, in fact, was never locked. <laughs> Once in their father's study, they would find all sorts of curiosities, little chips of bone or animal teeth or Civil War era bullets or pins from all over the world or takeout menus from restaurants or business cards or old credit cards or polished gemstones or what seemed like endless stacks of papers addressed to either their father, mother, or both. These were novelties, wondrous things they didn't fully understand. All of these objects they observed in secret and vowed to keep their collective secret amongst themselves just between the two of them. And the secret became the thread that both enabled and secured their brotherhood until one day they discovered a human skull tucked in the back of the bottom drawer of their father's desk. How had they not seen it before, the large and impossible artifact? And they began touching it, then lifting it out from its secure resting place, then passing it between one another 
examining it, exploring its texture and roundness, and eventually tossing it between them as if it were a ball, until the younger brother, age seven, missed a poor throw from his older brother and dropped the skull, which fell to the floor and shattered into a countless number of pieces. And looking at each other, they ran to their mother and confessed to everything they had done through blaming the other for what had happened. <laughs> I really should have prepared some jokes. Um, skip that one. Um, <laughs> I'll, I can auction this off later if someone wants to read the, the, skipped, uh, the skipped story. It's worth it. Um, this, this is just a real life interjection. I was in New York this summer. Um, so I, um, I was on Craigslist, naturally. <laughs> And uh, I just posted this ad. Uh, it's a single male seeks single female with air conditioning. No one answered. <laughs> th th thanks, Amanda. Rub, rub it in. Uh, they were just intimidated because who has air conditioning? Okay. Uh, appropriately, this one is called Summer. Uh, Though it is light outside, and the sun shines from before you are awake, and there are no clouds, and the sun is forever round and bright, and the days are warm, and the nights are warm, and I've put away all my sweaters, as has everyone else, and women walk on streets, ride bikes, wait for the bus with their skin showing, shoulders and legs and backs and feet and sometimes abdomens, and I wear my t-shirts and shorts and sandals. When I see all of the skin that has been hidden and covered for months prior, I think of my own skin and where it has been hidden and where, not in my own home while bathing or in bed, and I have taken on new meaning and feeling now, exposed in summer, and I wonder if everyone else feels as estranged from their forms as I do. Okay, um, two more. This one is called the Harrier. Uh, it's a bird. <laughs> one morning I was out on my usual walk when I came across a large raptor resting halfway up a tall pine tree. I thought it might be a northern harrier. I've been bird watching for several years now and have become somewhat of an expert. And due to this bird's distinctive gray coloring, I reasoned that it couldn't be a red-tailed or red-shouldered hawk or turkey vulture or cooper's hawk or any type of eagle. But without binoculars, which I had foolishly left in my book bag where I always keep them, it was nearly impossible at such a distance to properly identify the species of the bird. I observed it for 10 minutes, slowly moving closer and closer to the base of the tree in which it was perched, careful not to startle it, enraptured by its quiet majesty, until I was as close as I could get when it finally tired of my presence and flew away. What a sight to behold, two or three long flaps of its wings before I could no longer see it. The next morning, and nearly every morning for the next several months, I walked by the same pine tree, but I never saw the bird. I spoke of it often, as a mysterious creature, only once sighted, and the way I spoke of it, it had become something of an oral legend. But never having seen it again, there were moments when I began to doubt my own expertise, questioning not whether I had ever seen the bird, but whether it was truly the rare and distinct harrier that I thought it was. 
Then, walking the same path some six months later, I saw it again, perched high in the same pine tree. Naturally, I stopped and stared in awe. But I was late for a meeting, and prior to spotting the bird, had been walking at a speed that was causing me to sweat, even though it wasn't a warm day out, attempting to get to the meeting on time, though I knew it would be impossible to do so. Nevertheless, I had to be there. My position as an instructor at the university depended on it. <laughs> I had my binoculars with me, thank gosh, and tried to walk and observe at the same time. This was nearly impossible. As I passed the bird, marveling through the wobbling, magnified image at its gray beauty, I turned around, walking backward at an unsafe pace. But the meeting, I rushed to it, fearful of being any tardier than I already was going to be. I was only a few minutes late to the meeting, where for the duration of the proceedings, I sat mentally absent, thinking solely of the Harrier. Years have passed since then. I've never again, not once even, seen the bird. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad Brad Queen is in here. Um, okay, this is the last one. It's called Hanami, which is a, a real Japanese festival of sorts. Um, <laughs> it is a Japanese ritual one day a year to arrive early in the morning to a park and lay a blanket on the ground, stabilize it from gusts of wind with woven baskets filled with berries and sake and sandwiches with the crust removed and cut into perfect squares and nothing else, and to sit on the blanket or lay on it from sunrise to sunset to feel the grass or pebbles, the undulation of the earth beneath, touching one's legs or back, and to eat small bites of fruit and sandwiches and savor sips of sake with the entirety of one's family and observe the changes in the world. Because the vista afforded at such a time of year, when the cherry blossoms have come into full bloom, signifies the changing of things, which I should never forget, as the transformation is steady, coming every March, immense in the turn from tawny dead branches to pink effulgence, intrepid and evanescent and spectacular, and every year, and this is why the ritual must exist, not an augur of anything like the negative energy, the wilt of unforetold change, but the opposite. Okay. Um, I don't even need to read this. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce Meriwether Clark. Um, for point of reference, her name has one R and no A. <laughs> Uh, one R. Two R's. Yeah. Two R's. Here it's got two R's and an A, which is a different person altogether. Three R's. Three R's, but there's one two. There's an R at the end. All right. It's spelled wrong here, but not that that matters. Um, okay. Meriwether's a second-year poet, and she has the name of a poet. I think that's worth noting. Anyway, uh, to me what is so vital and essential about these readings is the chance to encounter the writer, not simply to see, to place one's eyes on an author, but to encounter. After a year of listening to all of the great writers in this program read their work, I've come to one very small and probably unoriginal conclusion, which is that these readings provide the rare chance, unlike when you're looking at a page, to see the writer to take note of her mannerisms, the spaces she leaves between her words, the volume with which she reads, the emphases she places. 
This is the essence of what fascinates me about this performative art. What makes Red House at Woodstock an experience beyond the studio reel, or the Allman Brothers at Fillmore East full of live but definitive renditions of many of their songs. I was going for the Obama intonation there. I don't know if anybody got it. I could go on for at least another six or seven minutes. However, this is to say that there is an immense pleasure to be in the presence of Meriwether, or Justice or Senator, as many of us like to affectionately call her. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> uh, so don't listen to everything I haven't told you about her poetry. Just bask in the delectability. Savor the delicately prepared language she is about to deliver. Indulge fully in Meriwether's ripe, yet firm in the center workings of the English language as you would the juiciest summer peach. <laughs> Meriwether Clark. Thank you, Scott. I feel like I'm being carefully watched now. <laughs> um, and thank you, Skylight, of course, for having us. This is wonderful. So I'm going to read seven poems. Eight poems, actually. Sorry. Miscounted. Um, <laughs> the first is titled Re colon birth, which seemed clever, but um, maybe isn't. So <laughs> rebirth. I waited for water to come where the road home forked. Both directions pointed toward the sun. I waited as the dirt turned from dry to cracked, little canyons forming like scales, imagining all along the simple relief of a bath. Pink skin, legs razored smooth, hair unbraided and fanning around my head. This time there would be no chance of coming out wrong, too fat, too thin, too red, too white, just clean and bare, no blood or half-closed eyes, no fists prying open or mouth letting out a high-pitched wail, a first breath full of knives. Wellspring. One, I like to think tragedy, not choice, made you who you are. Someone prone to unexpected outbursts, pouting and tantrums, ridiculous at your age. I slip notes to waitstaff, apologizing for your tone. Crumple $5 bills behind happy hour menus. When you tell stories, I know only to believe the parts where you're not the main event. <laughs> Righting wrongs, saving crying babies, and sad old women. It's not always untrue, though. They're the ones you're kindest to. The weak, the small, not the ones who can hurt you back. Two, a favorite memory, picking apples in the fall, still a child. If heaven is above and hell is below, why isn't the ground hot? Because, you said, fingers in my hair, then nothing could grow. Three, after the last big fight, the one where you called me a bitch, my sister dreamt coyotes filled the house. I dreamt you could get back in. You stood above us, 
laughing as water dripped from the ceiling and fell into our eyes. I clung to her the way muscles hold to wet sea rocks, listening for waves to slink up, then pull away, keep us fed, but still, as always, hungry. What isn't? We could have collected pennies flattened on the railroad tracks. We could have spent them all throwing late night soirees with thin black pens as party favors and bright white tapers held between our palms. We could have seen everyone and everything, crossed out all fears of awkwardness, learned that warm honey light makes even the selfish beautiful again. We could have forgotten how to pray, who needs God when you have so many friends? And in that early morning fog of sleep that only wants to last, we could have not been sad for once. We could have felt like curls of ink drying on a page, linked and happy still. This poem is called Women as Cows. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Women as Cows. <laughs> yeah, it is important. <laughs> Women as Cows. When I expand, let it be horizontally forward, pushing me on my hands and knees. Let my breasts morph into one mottled half sphere, hanging down as a beaten petal clings to its core. Let me learn to love the taste of grass, the blades disintegrating on my tongue in a sour lime green swill. Let my father learn to count on me for milk. Let my mother give up dreams of a small pink baby and accept that I am now a pile of bones tied together in the shape of a cow, no longer uncertain of my purpose. Letter from the man beneath my porch. <laughs> it's not a nice letter. <laughs> I almost killed you last night as I laid under the wet floorboards among the rats and the mud. The rain above was louder than a bone saw and I wanted to climb inside a bed. Anyone's really, but yours was there and the window was open and the light was off. I wanted to be warm and asleep all at once, to wake in a room and step into a steaming shower, let the water trickle down my back and gather at the base of my spine in the small dimple where I think my heart has gone. Maybe it was never in its proper place to begin with. Maybe that beat I feel when I run uphill is a sick, sad joke played by the same dumb God who let me come out so crooked, who watched from above when I was ten years old, decorating my bunk bed with halos of torn spider legs, and thought, yes, yes, I'll keep him alive. What floats on water? Things that are light, 
dried leaves, their edges curled, empty cans cracked in the center and folded in half, sheets of paper clinging to whatever it is that holds them up as sentences blur, smudge and swirl to liquid. Only the occasional word will stay intact. If anything, just to wink at you from the tar black waves of the pond at night, say a small and unintuitive hello as you lean down, the moon bright overhead, only expecting to see your blank and lonely face. I have two more. Another flower poem. <laughs> Our love was a field of poppies, hundreds of flowers, thin-stemmed and big-headed, smelling faintly of rain. Our love grew like a hundred-year plant, waited years stacked on years to bloom a single bud that, once awake, drank too much water and wilted one night in the light of a street lamp. Our love meant I moved, if you asked, in between rooms, across six-lane highways, through deserts without stopping once to smell the three-toothed sage. Our love unaligned the spines of my feet, left my toes facing sideways, and my posture unbound. It meant dawn was no longer a time of day, but a mood Fear of disturbing your peaceful body. Grief when it rose to take a shower or go to work without saying goodbye. Our love left me wondering if I was a stalk of corn, not a daisy or a violet. If I was afraid to see the ground growing high instead, hoping for nothing more than to be picked by the crows and their sharp black beaks. This is my last poem. It's called Drought, which is, I guess, topically <laughs> relevant. <laughs> Drought. Hooves heavy on the cracking ground, they walk in circles, swinging their tails and admiring the sky. Crooked flies try to touch their yellow eyes, land in the shade of hollow shoulder blades instead. If cows knew how to speak, maybe they'd say, I'm thirsty, or maybe they'd stand farther apart and never look up. But they are not human. Their dry throats mean when water comes, they will love it more. They will not have forgotten how to drink. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so it's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our final reader, second year fiction writer Will Litton. Um, Will is a tall redhead who I sometimes carpool with. <laughs> According to Claire Cronin, if Will was an animal, he would probably be a rooster. <laughs> He's considering cutting his hair. Um, but that aside, <laughs> uh, Will's a, a wonderful human with a great sense of humor and a deep 
sense of kindness. Um, his writing is defined by intellectual intensity and rhythmic repetition. His work is often very voice-driven, generated in the interaction of a willful voice with a harrowing, uncanny environment. Please join me in welcoming the singular Will <laughs> Thank you, Meriwether. Uh, how's that? I'm going to read um, five pages of double-spaced prose. Uh, the font is Garamond, 12 point. It will take me no more than 12 minutes. Um, these are excerpts from a longer piece, and so uh, what you need to know is there's a young man, he's in his 20s, he's crashing in the, um, the uh, coach house of a woman who's in her 50s. He's kind of a slob. He's an aspiring writer. She's an established writer. Um, he's narrating, but in fact a majority of the text is reported indirect speech of the older woman. Uh, here goes. On the lawn she sits cross-legged, the half lotus, a thick volume of poetry open in her lap, where she paces the driveway barefoot, novel in hand. She sits on the weather-worn ceramic roof, imbrex and tegula, straddling the ridge just outside her bedroom window, reading under the tapering shade of the eaves. She tucks her knees under her chin in the nook by the bay window. She spreads papers and journals across the kitchen table, looms over them, reads for hours standing up. She remains on the back patio for entire afternoons, entire evenings, entire nights, slowly accruing layers, sweater, scarf, jacket, hat, and studying, by the light of the sun or the porch lamp, a dozen different books. She waves to me as I pass by. She beckons me over for a word, or she never lifts her head from the page. How is it that I'm still living on her property, she wonders. How is it that she hasn't yet scared me away? It's remarkable, really. A continual surprise, she says, to find me, day in and day out, reclining on her lawn, plucking books from the shelves of her study, napping in her living room, vegetating in the den, sleeping with the light on in her coach house. What could I possibly be doing here? Could it be that I've actually moved in? Could it be that I've settled down, so to speak? At least for the moment, at least as much as any single 26-year-old bohemian, or rather self-styled bohemian, can be said to have settled down? Or should she attribute my continual presence to a kind of massive, crippling lethargy, she wonders, <laughs> to an utter lack of meaningful ambition? Should she think of my presence, in other words, as a kind of surrender? <laughs> she sits on her rooftop, or she paces the driveway in blue jeans and moccasins, reading Lispector or Stein or Dickinson, something with a moment and a rhythm, she says, material that demands locomotion and open air. 
material that demands to be read aloud. She paces on dewy mornings or on evenings with sufficient moonlight, a book held deftly in the left hand, parted open with pinky and thumb, and a cigarette left smoldering in the right, clasped between two fingers. She rarely takes a drag. It's more a matter of marking time, she says, or it's more a matter of indulging in some false romantic vision, the writer and her cigarettes, or it's a matter of imprinting the air with a certain wistful aroma. It's a matter of habit, a matter of ritual, the priestess swinging her censer, blessing the world with sweet-smelling incense. These things will kill you, she tells me, tapping the pack in her breast pocket. Little acts of suicide. Twenty-six, she says, laying a hand on my shoulder, looking me up and down. Twenty-six, shaking her head, throwing her arms into the air. A baby, she says. A toddler at best. She's more than twice my age. She has lapped me in the race towards senility and death. Twenty-six. She's incredulous, she tells me. She's mildly repulsed, even. <laughs> 26, it's not a real age, she says. It's a purely hypothetical age. She can barely cogitate it. She can barely hold it in her imagination, much less acknowledge it as something of her world, as something of flesh and bone staring her in the face. Do I even consider myself a real person, she asks me? Do I think of myself as real? She certainly hopes not. She can no longer accept that people are alive, sentient, conscious, moving around and making decisions before the age of 30. <laughs> Maybe even 35. On the rooftop, a book held out into the sunlight just beyond the brim of shade. Two others lay open, face down across the rounded ceramic ridge, places marked thusly. Or on the back patio, cushioned seats, canvas parasol, the circular glass table piled with books. Her reading glasses, all twelve pairs, are horned-rimmed, unflattering, garishly ornamented, a willful self-parody, self she says. She sits with steaming mugs of tea, even in the hottest weather. Half-gallon mugs, ceramic goliaths, carnival props, she says, circus things, above which her head, hovering, gingerly sipping, eyes trained on the pages below, appears cartoonishly small. Wrought by her own hands on the kick wheel in her studio, glazed and fired in a communal art space downtown, the thin string ends and flimsy paper tags of four or five tea bags dangle barely over the rim of the mug, affixed there with a binder clip. How is it that I'm still here, she asks. How is it that she continues to stumble upon me, an unexpected houseguest, a disorienting and even momentarily frightening surprise, like a neighbor's cat slipped in through the vestigial dog door, sprawled atop the mantel, peering sleepy-eyed, stunned. There I am, she says, sunning myself in the nook space by the bay window, or scribbling notes in my thin and unkempt journals, seated at the antique school desk in her living room. There I am occupying her kitchen, crowding the fridge and cupboard with my quote-unquote groceries, <laughs> filling the house with a bizarre, perhaps even offensive, or at best spectacularly bland aromas of what I apparently consider 
cooking. <laughs> Is this the new life that she should prepare herself for? Am I to become a fixture in her world? She sits on the patio. She paces the driveway. She sits on her rooftop or the lawn. How long has it been, she asks me. Six months? Seven? Wasn't this meant to be a quote-unquote temporary arrangement? A quote-unquote stopgap, a place for me to crash as I looked for a more permanent location in the city. This is how it was billed to her, at least, she tells me, when our mutual friend, or rather, my former professor, her friend, she says, mentioned that a young writer might be moving to LA, might be in need of a place to stay. A provisional lodging situation may have been the way it was phrased. <laughs> but at what point along the way was it decided, and by whom, that I would be staying on indefinitely? Not that she minds, of course. Not that she wouldn't happily adopt me, if only because she takes great pity. <laughs> She's 53, she says, 53, and yet all of her friends are turning 60, 61, 62. She's been left in the dust age-wise once again, the eager and vivacious straggler, she says, the brash and punkish up-and-comer. How is it that she always finds herself in this position, this back seat, this infantile role? Time seems to progress with remarkable predictability, she says, nauseating predictability. Trudging forward in lockstep, never gaining or losing ground in relation to those around you. It's true, of course, that gaps in age seem to diminish in importance, seem to shrink and perhaps even vanish as people get on in years. As the discrepancy decreases, not in raw magnitude, but as a percentage of the whole. It's true, obviously, but it also isn't. She's always been a decade behind. When her friends were turning 40, 41, 42, beginning to peer over the peaks of their lives, mounting that summit with a kind of sullen self-confidence, a sober and meditative repose, there she was, a veritable nymph, barely acquainted with her 30s, ambling up the sunnier, greener, less severe and less magisterial links of the hillsides below, blissfully ignorant of what awaited her over the ridge. Her finest years all around her, her first novel on the shelves of bookstores, accruing sparse but positive reviews, appearing on the short lists of the minor prizes, selling modestly but certainly above expectations. A quote unquote, young new talent in the literary scene, she says. The sloppiness of her prose, the gross enthusiasm, the blandly experimental forms, these were easily packaged as youthful verve. Her friends, her seniors, lavished her with condescension and praise. They regarded her with parental pride and envy. Now she's a sprightly 53, she tells me, a wide-eyed and innocent 53, and her friends are turning 60, 64, 65, staring into that dim expanse beyond retirement, that ephemeral denouement, the foothills, the shore, the ocean of oblivion beyond. They are experiencing their first truly grim inklings, their first mortal shivers, standing now with the long shadow of the scythe cast over their shoulders. It is a dignified moment for them. She'd like to feel old for once, she tells me. 
She'd like to act bitter, stately, superior, and she'd like to do so with impunity. <laughs> she'd like to feel majestic and wise and contemptuous, self-righteously contemptuous. That's what she has me for, she says, <laughs> to finally make her feel old. That must be why I stumbled into her life as if deposited into her lap by the hands of Providence. The 26-year-old tenant, the young hanger-on, she's finally beginning to understand my usefulness. I find her lying face down on the lawn, motionless, apparently sleeping. Or I find her face down on the living room floor, nose and forehead pressed into the varnished wood, eyes closed, arms resting at her sides. Several books are scattered at odd angles around her head, resting open, spines creased. The pages are sweat-stained, aggressively dog-eared. <laughs> do I wonder if she's fallen on her face and died, she asks me. Or do I wonder if she's died and subsequently fallen on her face? Do I wonder if she's died while falling? Died while eternally suspended in the act of falling? No, she isn't dead, she says. She doesn't plan on dying anytime soon. She's thinking of push-ups, she tells me. She's imagining them, working them through the meat of her brain, the premotor cortex, one at a time. 14, 15, 16. It's an exercise in thought, she tells me, a thought exercise. One of these days, she says, she'll rise from the hardwood by the force of her mind alone. Or I find her face down on the couch, legitimately sleeping. I find her asleep in her chair, craned forward, head resting atop the patio table, crickets chirping in the surrounding darkness. We typically imagine the deaths of those for whom we harbor intense feelings, she tells me. Real emotion, she says. People whom we love or hate. Of course, she's imagined my death, she tells me. She's imagined it over and over again, in great detail, a thousand different permutations. When someone's as clumsy and absent-minded as I am, she says, one is given to imagine all kinds of deaths. Walking right out in front of oncoming buses, for example. Walking right off the ledges of tall buildings. Right off bridges with sizable guardrails. But she imagines my death because she cares about me, she says. It's because she does indeed love and despise me, which is so frightening and delightful. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.